Ladies and gentlemen, race day will never be the same. Pins are no longer needed. No more holes in your shirts. Bibboards has the only snap and lock technology. This is revolutionary. I helped put on a road race this year, and I was like, why do we have these damn safety pins? They're no longer needed thanks to Bibboards. You can save the shirt, conserve the environment. It's the cleanest and greenest way to get to the finish line. Check it out, bibboards.com. Link in the show notes. Use code Let's Run to save 20%. A little snap and lock technology replaces safety pins. You can customize them, put your logo on them. Really cool. Race directors, you can get them for the entire race if you want. Bibboards.com. Link in the show notes. Use code Let's Run. The second sponsor for today's podcast is you, the podcast listener. If you haven't signed up for the Supporters Club now, can you really consider yourself a true track and field fan? Folks, that plane ticket did not pay for itself to get Jonathan Gull to Australia. It's made possible by Supporters Club members. Sign up today. Let's run.com slash subscribe. After a nearly four-year wait, the world's greatest foot race is back. World Cross Country lived up to the hype and delivered. Crazy worlds. We're going to break it down for you. Jonathan Galt is still in Australia. The action was amazing. Upsets, big names, a big storm. So much to get into. But there's a lot more to get into in today's show as well. World record mania. Ryan Krauser has done it again. But should we put an asterisk next to his latest world record? Lamecha Gurma has taken down Daniel Coleman's world record. Grant Fisher, not so much. Is he one of the biggest losers of the week? And Femke Bowl has taken down a world record that has stood for nearly 40 years. Is it time for Sydney McLaughlin to get a little nervous? Plus, it wouldn't be a USATF indoors in Albuquerque without a little controversy. Do we witness the most ridiculous DQ in history? Speaking of controversial, Nike has aired a new ad. How bad is it? All of that and more in today's show. This is Let's Run.com co-founder Robert Johnson, joined by my genetic equal, Weldon Johnson, 2806, 10,000 meter runner. Weldon and I were reunited this week. I actually saw each other this morning as I departed his Connecticut home, rushed back through the traffic to get here. I'm joined as also by Jonathan Galt, our boots on the ground, a staff writer who is still in Australia. And at the end of the show, we'll be John joined by Jonathan's new Australian girlfriend. Oh, wait, he hasn't secured one yet, but he's going on a bar crawl later tonight. So hopefully on next week's show, John, we can welcome her to the show. Yeah, it's going to be John? weird. We're going we're gonna to have to start doing these shows at 7 a.m. That's what it is right now. It's 7.30 in Australia because once I just stay here with my new Australian girlfriend, uh, there's a big time difference, Robert. So yeah, but no, in all real, in all uh, seriousness, I'm having a great time. Uh, did a lot of walking around Sydney yesterday. Going to do a lot of walking again today, exploring it. It's one of the perks of going to World XC in a cool country is you get to stay a couple extra days and explore. That's what we did. Remember in 2017, we went gorilla trekking in Uganda. It's one of the most unforgettable experiences of my life. 
and we were in Uganda because the World Cross Country Championships were in Uganda. So yeah, it's uh, I'm having a blast right now. And was last week the busiest week of track and field in the month of February ever? I'm struggling to think of anything that compares. Well, as we we're about to go live with this podcast, we realized, wait, we never talked about Gurma's world record yet because we did a Supporters Club show from John in Australia, but it was just a World Cross Country preview show. And we're like, wait, we still haven't talked about Gurma's record. We've got to talk about Gurma today. It's crazy. What a week. It, it just Oh, and breaking coming. news. Well, then right now, 30 minutes before we started the podcast, Fred Curley, the 100-meter world champion, he's no longer with Nike. He's announced a new sponsor. And we're going to have you guys guess on the air, who do you think dropped the bag? to get Fred Curley ahead of the Olympic. They've agreed to a multi-year contract, so they're going to be his sponsor next year during the Olympic year, too. Okay, this okay, is easy, my... John. A new, new sponsor? I have my new prediction. Sponsor. It, we're assuming it's, it's well, a shoe company, right? It is a shoe company. You've heard of them, for sure. Okay, I got mine. My I got prediction. mine. This is easy. The easy one will be proven right, but if it's the other one, it'll be even sh- more shocking. Yes, and I have a second uh, one. I have a second option. Yeah, so I just say same with me now. They, we say one, two, three, and then we say the name of the company, and okay. then if that's wrong, and we'll then do we'll go from one. there for the conversation. But I actually two F two two same. The obvious one is who it's going to be. I'm pretty sure, but if it's the other one, I'm going to freak. All right, guys, on the count of three, you got to make your predictions. One, two, three. Puma. Puma. You're both wrong. That would have been oh my, my first guess as well, but you're both wrong. Then, if it's on, holy crap. It's not on either. Well, then. Ooh, on should have stepped up, gone non distance. That would have been just groundbreaking. Okay, this is going to be good then because. Oh. What if I told you the world's fastest man is now sponsored by ASICS? It doesn't fit the. I don't know my my like worldview. Really? Frankly, I didn't realize Asics had the budget to sign Frank Curley, Fred Curley. They there were a few years ago. We were wondering is Asics still in the game? You know, they seem to be getting rid of some of their athletes. They they do still have Sarah Hall, but last year they signed the NCAA hundred meter champion Joseph Fombula, hundred two hundred meter champion. He did the double for Florida, and now they've made a huge move. Signing Fred Curley, he'll make his debut on Thursday in Melbourne at the Maury Plant meet. This is a big deal. This is ASICs saying, hey, we're seeing some of these other things going down. I I mean, Puma has signed Elaine Thompson, so they got a big name this year as well. They've already got Warholm. But yeah, I was I was I was stunned by this to see to see ASICs sign Curley, honestly. Hey, when's the last time ASICs had a top sprinter? It's that it's you know, defies the playbook. Well, Fonbula, they signed Fonbula last year. He's not in the same category, John. But also, uh, I started thinking about this. I'm like, because Nike's the number one sponsorship in the sport. Adidas is like a clear number two. Adidas doesn't sponsor 100 meter runners, do they, John? It's interesting how how companies gravitate towards certain events. Because when I think of the 100... Is it just Nike and Puma? I feel like that's what it's been. Am I m- missing a lot of people? 
Well, Adidas has Akani Sambine. They have Johan Blake. I mean, I know oh, Johan yeah, Blake's not that relevant anymore, but no, Adidas has some sprinters. I feel like they have more in the 200. Like Lyles is obviously their biggest guy, but I think it's, it, look, more sponsors in the game is good for everyone, I think. And it's interesting to me. Curly, I, I wonder what the approach here was with Nike. Maybe they say, hey, we had him as a silver medalist at the Olympics. We had him as world 100-meter champion. We got a lot of good value out of him, and now Adidas wants to pay... Sorry, now Asics wants to pay something big, and we're not going to match it? It's weird, though. You would think... Like, Curly's one of the contenders for the Olympic 100-meter title next year. You've got the world champion. You could try to lock him up until the Olympics, and Nike's letting him walk. So it's interesting. And also, Marvin Bracey-Williams, who is the silver medalist, at the World Championships last year, was also with Nike, and he is also in the midst of contract negotiations. And it's interesting, he tweeted right after the Curly news, said, yesterday's price is not today's price. So I don't know if Fred told him what he's getting or if he just has a guess, but Marvin Bracey Williams is looking to get paid as well. Well, it could also be that he thinks that now Nike just needs a top male spur in the 100 meters. But are you going to say that's going to be Marvin Bracey Williams? I think without prompting, I wouldn't have told you that Marvin Bracey Williams got silver at Worlds last year. But well, Nike still has Michael Norman and Christian Coleman. Michael Norman switching to the hundred—that's another big piece of news that we might have to get into in the show. So they've got a couple hundred meter guys up to them where they want to add. Clearly, they don't have Coley anymore. So is it more important for them to get Marvin Bracey, or do they want to just say, "Hey, we're rolling with"? Coleman and Norman. And there's been changes at Nike. Craig Mosbach, the former head of USATF, is no longer the running guy. He's retired. So maybe there's a slightly different strategy. I mean, Craig was only in that job a couple years anyway, but I didn't. And there has been cutbacks, people think, at Nike in terms of what they're doing with sponsorships. So we need to have Craig on the show, Phil Principal. I'm like myself. Anyways, people didn't come on here to hear us talk about ASIC sponsoring Fred Curley. Let's talk about World Cross Country. This show has been sponsored by ASICs. Thank you, ASICs. We expect (laughs) we'll just kind of book it here in advance. We thank you for your payment. I've got to be honest here because that's why people listen to the show. A lot of media members just say what they think they're supposed to say instead of what they really believe. Or what will get them paid, you mean? I love World Cross Country. At Let's Run.com, we make a point of really hyping this up as one of the treasures of the sport. I've gone to I've gone to it in Ireland. I've gone to it in Amman, Jordan, one of the greatest 48-hour trips of my life. Uganda, Guiang, China. I was hoping to go this year, but I kind of just didn't make it with the children and we're getting a new house. And anyways. And I didn't even watch it. Not a single moment of these live streams did I watch. And again, this was calculated. My son was sick four to five days this week. John was out. I was working a lot at night, really late. I'm like, these things are like two in the morning. I'm driving up to see Weldon. My wife was sick. I was like, I don't think I can drive. It's not safe to take my son on a five-hour trip if I'm tired. So I woke up at 6 a.m. And I liked it. It brought me back to sort of the early days of Let's Run, 
Like we're not when everything was online or on TV even. It's like, how do you get the results? So I was debating, like, should I go to the forum and just read through the official thread? Should I go to the res- Should I just go to the front page and see what Weldon and Jonathan have up? Or go to the results? So I was on the results page. And first thing I did was go to the mixed relay. And I thought, okay, does Australia win it? John said they're the favorite. And I thought, no. Some random African country is going to rise up to the occasion and beat them. Kenya isn't a random African country, Robert. We knew it was going to be either. If it wasn't Australia, it was going to be Kenya or Ethiopia. So I saw that. I think I then may have clicked on the junior races. And I got to the women's women's race. And I was clicking on that. And before I thought, okay, what do I think about this race? And I was like, okay, it's all about does Good Day win? I'm like, does she win? Like, it's not 100%, but I think she does. And I click on it. And I'm like scanning up top. I'm, I don't see her name. I scroll down. I don't see her name. So then I go back, make sure it's like, again, I've been out for 10 minutes. And I'm like, did she not start? Like, what's going on? Did she pass out? And then I hit control F and I type in L-E-T, however you spell it. And she shows up in the bottom and there's no DNS. It's DNQ or just DQ. DQ, excuse me. There's no N and disqualify. Yes. And I was like, whoa, what DQ? And I was like, how does that happen? My brain wasn't really processing it. And then I did immediately think, and this will tie into the USA indoors in a minute. I was like, how do you get DQ? Blocking somebody? I'm like, this had better be a legitimate disqualification. I immediately thought like they probably did something stupid. She barely touched somebody. And then I went to the homepage and saw everything. And it was wild. Yeah, it was a legitimate DQ. Uh, if there was some sort of strange bumping and Latessenbeck Gide was DQ'd from the World Cross Country Championships, I think Let's Run would have completely exploded. But this was extremely dramatic as well. Because Robert, I was watching this unfold, and unfortunately, I wasn't able to get out on the course as much as I wanted because they kind of had the media penned in a little bit. There were fences, and at one point there was a gap in the fence to get out, but then the gap was closed off. And the finish line was right near the mix zone. Anyway, my point is to say, when I was watching this unfold, I had to mostly watch it on the screen. And I'm looking at the lead pack, and I'm like, wait, Gide is supposed to be in this race, right? Where is she? I hadn't seen her at the press conference. I hadn't seen her really running around or anything before the meet. And then I realized, no, she's just biding her time. She hung back. I thought she was running. Like, when she made that turn into the home straight, I was like, this was a brilliant tactical race by Latessa Mbekide because she sat in the back of the lead pack. She didn't do any of the work. Beatrice Chibet of Kenya starts making a move on the final lap. Gide responds. She just sits on her shoulder, really smart. And then about 1,200 to go or so, Gide makes her own move, takes off. I'm like, this is it. She was up by eight seconds with 500 meters to go. People don't lose from that scenario. Except she just miscalculated. And it was tough. It was hot. It was humid. It was a very difficult course. And it was reminiscent of Joshua Cheptegei in Uganda in 2017. That move, I think he went a little harder earlier than Gide. But it was the same thing. She didn't quite 
measure her energy to get all the way to the finish line. She makes the turn. She starts bleeding ground. Chibet realizes, oh my God, she's slowing. I can win this thing. She launches into an all-out sprint. So by the time she, I mean, Gide starts looking back and panicking and Chibet blows by her right as she does that. Gide is on the ground, collapses, and then her coach comes over and picks her up. But it was stunning in the moment because on the announce, the public address announcer was saying, here comes Latessenbeck Gide, the world record holder on the track, the world champion on the track. Now she's the world champion in cross country. They were like crowning her and not realizing because Beatrice Tourette was all the way on the left, right hugging the tangent that Chibet was the one actually going to win the race. So it was crazy. Yeah, I got to give a thumbs down to the cameraman too because when I watched the replay, they don't even show Chibet running up. They just show her basically when she pulls even. Yeah, John, could you see it live? Uh, a little bit. Basically, I was looking. Chibet was really far to the side. She was like basically as far as you can be while still being on the course. So I was, I was watching Gide and I was far enough away that I couldn't co- totally tell she was slowing down. I'm watching her, and then suddenly, Chibet essentially materialized. I was like, oh my god, there's a runner right next to her. And they've been lapping people, but I was like, this is not part of the loop course. This has to be an actual competitor in the race. So I realized, oh my god, it's Chibet. And that was like, something must be going wrong with Gide. She slowed way down. So I had a similar experience, even watching it in person, as people did watching it on the broadcast. Yeah, I... I ended up staying up. My plan was to watch the mixed relay, go to sleep, skip the women's race because I was going to know the result, sleep to the men's race. Anyway, I started working. I just was like, it was one race after another. The American women get a medal. I'm like, okay, I'm down for this. I'm watching all the races. And thank God I watched this women's race. But I'm kind of doing other stuff. And I, this thing is over. This race is over. And I, I went and rewatched it. I think the announcer is right at the top of the hill. Said, "Oh, she's gaining a little bit," but there wasn't like alarm. I'm sure I just sort of dismissed that. I, I probably glanced up at the screen, looked up, didn't see anyone in the picture. And later, I saw a different viewpoint where the camera was like more to the left, and they sh- you could see her kind of coming. But on the official feed, you really didn't see her until almost immediately before the pass. Like, and then she falls down and can't get up right away, and you're like, "What the hell is going on here?" But the John, I completely forgot about Cheptegei. This is the third time that I can remember that the, well, leader, somebody who was leading the World Cross Country Championships has essentially fallen down on the course. I guess two of the three times they finished. Well, this time it didn't count, but there was Cheptegei, as you pointed out, and then Kenanise Bekele back at Mombasa I mean, these World Cross Country Championships are unbelievable, John. Mombasa was the craziest thing I've seen. Australia seemed pretty crazy. Robert's talking about Amon Jordan. In Mombasa, like, this thing was in, it's on the Kenyan coast. People were, like, hanging in trees, knocking down barbed wire fences to get to the meet. It was, like, 95 degrees and humid. And I learned something, John, from your recap of that race. This race was in 2007. John, what year did you come to join Work For Us and Let's Run.com? 2014. Okay, so you were not at the race, and during COVID, you wrote you wrote an article. Like I rewatched, I watched the 20, 2007 World Cross Country Championships. I was there, and I didn't realize this. I alluded to it in a recap, but it really wasn't certain at the time. I think McKayley miscounted the laps, 
and you noticed something from the screen that you thought he did it and no one had ever pointed this out but anyway that's what happened there this one i mean she just misjudged by about 50 meters and it's a downhill finish you think you could make it right i think if she doesn't get past though she doesn't fall right i think she freaked out once she saw her i i agree i think that was she was like wait a minute well i dropped her and then suddenly chibet was there and yeah i I agree with your take on that rigamorgas her body locks up or something and then she's down yeah the the other thing yeah well you mentioned candy spikele he was in second place when he dropped out of the race as soon as he got caught he made this move the announcers stuart story was on there like here's the great bikele he's looking great and then suddenly he's like oh no he isn't oh my god he's he stepped off the course it was it's nuts and Sometimes we're like, oh, the weather, we freak out about the weather for a track race. Like, can you remember, imagine like a 95 degree track race or 90 degree track race? We're like, oh, the weather's turning this thing into a jog fest. It's stupid. That doesn't happen at World Cross. They don't just say, oh, it's 90 degrees. We're all just going to jog. They just still go for it. And then you get insane endings like this. So I actually think the weather, and then it turned into this ridiculous windstorm for the men's senior race, but weather is such a key component of World Cross. It can make for such an interesting race. I I actually think that's a big part of it is whether it's either hot here or if it's cold and muddy in Europe, that's a key component of World Cross and one of the things I love about it. I think the loudest crowd, loudest salvation ever at World Cross Country was when the Kiwi dropped out of the race in Kenya. We're going to pull up audio from this. I mean, the crowd went nuts. They're these jumbotrons. And the crowd went absolutely nuts when the Ethiopian world, you know, he was like, what, like eight-time champion at the time or something? Like something He crazy. won the last five long and short course. So five long, five short course races. And yeah, Tedese, who passes him, is Eritrean. This wasn't even a Kenyan winning. It was just an Ethiopian not winning. So... Get your tickets, Tallahassee, twenty twenty six five. Yes, twenty twenty six. Though we have another one in Croatia next year. I expect to see both of you guys there. I'm already booked. Not true, but I'm coming. What? Wait, when's the date? Who also? Why did we pick the weekend of all the national championship indoor track races to have this thing? Not when it should be had. They need to. They need to do the schedule a little bit differently. Well, initially, there was going to be a World Indoors this year as well, in the middle of March, so I think this might have had something to do with it. Sebco essentially said the schedule got screwed up when they had to push all these things back due to COVID, and this was the weekend that worked. So I, I don't, I give them a bit of a pass, giving all the, all the COVID postponements. First of all, I like the date being moved up, middle of February versus end of March. It makes it much easier to, to really focus on an indoor slash horse country and then get ready for outdoors. You can have two peaks. Yeah, putting on the same weekend as I mean, you can maybe move things a week or two here just if you want to do your own home championships and whatnot. But I like the wild card here. What I always say, I said our sport needs more interceptions. We need more fumbles. We need more flute goals like they have in American soccer or regular soccer. So crazy stuff i would love to see and i guess there's no way and i assume well you never know maybe they have some sort of video technology the actual like splits or speed that these women were running at the end of this race because to put eight seconds on someone between 1200 to go and 500 to go is a lot 
I mean, that means you're running, you know, close to 20 seconds a mile faster than them. Um, and, you know, I always thought like, and I think Salazar taught his runners this, like, the best way to run is a really boring way. Make no surges. If someone surges, just slowly make up the gap. Don't make any moves. Wait, conserve energy, and slam it home. Should she have waited longer? You know, good day. Because I get it. She's worried about being out kicked, but she's faster than all of these women. She's closed at 10,402. These aren't, she's not facing Safan Hassan here. But I guess if she waits and loses, you're like, oh, well, how stupid. Why didn't she just push the pace? She's run 2901. I mean, <laughs> No, I, I've seen some of that, and I think that was Gade's best way to run it. I know she outkicked people to win the 10K last year, but in general, she's more of a strength runner. You know, she's the half marathon world record holder. She's a 216 marathoner. Chibet is absolutely no slouch on the track. She won the Commonwealth Games and the 5K and 10K. She was the silver medalist at Worlds. She was the Diamond League champion in the 5K last year. She can kick. So. I don't really have a problem with the strategy. She just, yeah, maybe she should have gone with 800 to go instead of 1200 to go, but it's a really hard race to win. Even someone as great as G'day can get beaten. And I, yeah, I, I applaud her effort. I think she ran, she ran a great race for about 9.9 K or however long. I think the race may have actually been a little over 10 K because the winning time was 33, 48, but yeah, stuff like this happens. Uh, that's why we love this event. So she's 22. Silver medal goes to another 22-year-old, Sige Gebra Salama of Ethiopia, who has run 30.06 on the track, 65.46 and a half. And then the bronze goes to Agnes in Gedich of Kenya, who's 23. She's actually hard to believe. Never broken 15 minutes. 5,000. 15.07 at altitude. Never really run a lot of European track races, but it does run 30-30 in the roads. Yeah, for a minute, Robert, I thought we might have got a huge breakout star because Grace Loibach Nawawuna, who was the Kenyan Trials champion, who's only 19 years old, she was at the front for a while. I was like, wow, is she really going to beat all these studs? She ended up fourth. Fourth for a 19-year-old is terrific, but yeah, the, the top 13 finishers were all African, and then 14th, Robert, top non-African, your girl, Nozomi Tanaka. This is what Nozomi Tanaka has done the last few weeks. On February 4th in Boston, she runs the Japanese record in the indoor mile, breaks it by 15 seconds by running 428 at BU. Six days later, sorry, that was the New Balance Indoor Grand Prix. I'm sorry. Six days later at BU, she runs 204 in the 800 and then comes back that afternoon and runs 845, which is a Japanese indoor record. And then eight days after that, in Australia, she runs a 10K cross-country race and finishes 14th in the world, top non-African. So... Normally, I think Robert's like, oh, wait, Japanese Luxembourg record. You know, he's freaking out about this. This was a pretty impressive stretch to go from running, you know, 1,500, 800 track PBs to 14th at World Cross. Impressive stuff. She's trying to catch the eye of Bowerman, John? Am I racing all the time? That's a joke. Well, I just love it because we hear all these excuses from 
people based in the U.S., Americans and non-Americans are like, oh, I can't travel to Australia. It's too far. Okay, Japan to Boston to Bathurst. And she's also just, I don't know, kind of fell in love with her during COVID, John, because she just, she's taken Japanese running, middle distance running to a new level. Like these are her three races in a row prior to the Olympics. And then the first round of the Olympics and the semifinals of the Olympics, 40408 national records. I don't know what the national record in the 1500 Japan was before that, but she's got it. Then she goes to the Olympics, runs 402.33, takes almost two seconds off her national record to make the semis. And you're like, oh, this is a great story. The Japanese, you know, they suck at the middle distances. That's, you know, this is where it ends here. No, 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 no. Then another almost, no, more than three seconds, 359.19 in the semis, and then makes the final and then breaks four again in the final, 359.95 for eighth. And I just love it when people love to compete or not afraid to compete. And her range extending all the way up to 10K cross country in the heat. So, golf clap for you. Well, Robert, you got to remember, this is she was a world junior champion in the 3000 in 2018. And also, last year, do you guys realize? I didn't realize this until someone pointed it out on the message board. She ran the 800, 1500, and 5K at the world championships last year. She didn't make the 1500 final. She went out in the semis. She runs the first round of the 5K on July 20th. The next day, she runs the first round of the 800 gets eliminated and then she comes back on July 23rd and runs the 5000 final and finishes 12th. So it's Wait, awesome. What? She ran the yeah. 5k first round, made the final and then ran the 800 after that? <laughs> Correct. We need to be celebrating her more. Like unbelievable. Just go for it, girl. One more thing on these I was looking at these results, trying to analyze them a bit more. But the Americans were led by Edna Kurgat in 18th place, I believe. Yes. Wayne Kaladi was 21st. And this just shows also how patient, um, well, I, I would say G'day was, but maybe not patient enough. Because there was a big pack. Uh, you know, after lap two, the Americans were in the pack. And yet at the finish, there's what, five laps, John? So I guess you know, it wasn't halfway, but close to halfway, the Americans were with the leaders. And Edna finishes nearly two minutes behind the winner. I mean, that's just crazy. One, it shows also once you fall off, look out. But at the finish, 33.48 for Beatrice Chabet and a minute and 48 behind Edna Kurgat. I mean, that's crazy. It also probably shows you can't really, we can't, because the, the laps were a little bit uneven distance. I wish I really, we could do an you know, apples to apples comparison, how much faster they were running, but they were probably just crushing that last lap. Yeah, it's laps two, three, and four were all the same distance. Lap five is different because you've got to account for the finish line as well. One other thing about this women's race. I noticed there was only five finishers for Team USA who, by the way, was fifth place, Australia fourth. I think Uganda was third, Ethiopia second, and Kenya first. And I, we do, I mean, compared to other countries, USATF normally sends full teams, junior, boys, girls, men and women. So we deserve credit for that, for always sending full teams to whatever championships we can go. But we didn't do it here. And I was like, why didn't they 
replaced an alternate. I knew that McKenna Morley had pulled out with an injury. And then Weldon's like, I asked Weldon what was going on. He's like, you didn't check your emails? Not until this morning. We got an email. This is really a disgraceful story to me. And it proves what I've said all along. USATF, they don't really care about, they only care about the super elite pros. You know, Max Eagle takes credit for the medals we win. But they always forget that, like, it's someone's dream to represent the country. Someone like Weldon got to wear the vest twice in his life. Like, to go is really special. You can tell your kids you did it. So McKenna Morley pulls out. Susanna Sullivan would have been next in the line to go. This is an email from, from her coach, George. Susanna, anticipating that she'd be contacted by USATF, immediately checked with both the U.S. State Department and Australian Customs and Immigration that her visa for entry to Australia was still valid and checked with airlines to find flights and found some that could get her into Sydney by Friday morning. She and her people then contact USATF, and they say they will not be sending her to the trip. She was told, quote-unquote, it was an internal decision and was said they didn't have enough time to arrange travel she explained to him that she didn't have travel enough time to tra- arrange travel for her, even though she's already arranged her own travel and figured out a way to get there. And then another excuse they gave her was that they would not have time to get her kit. Presumably, almost all these women are wearing smalls, let's be honest. I'm sure so, Susanna would have raced in any kit they had. I'm sure she would have raced in a men's singlet if it meant being able to run at well cross. So... The end of this email ends. The end result is that USATF denied Susanna the opportunity to compete at World Cross Country. This coming from an organization that claims to be all about the athletes. She was motivated enough to be prepared to go on a moment's notice, and USATF wasn't motivated enough to try to get her there. And check this out. And didn't even give her the courtesy of a call to explain their decision. Shame on you, USATF. Shame on you. It's sad. Because like you said, Robert, this is a dream for many athletes. You never know how many opportunities you'll have to represent your country. And for Susanna, she was doing everything she could to represent the U.S. And it's sad that her federation wasn't doing the same. I will, again, give credit. USATF is sending full teams. Very few countries send full squads in every single event to World Cross. So, I mean, this was almost a full squad. I do give them a lot of credit for that, but this is really sad. And I feel sorry for Susanna. But Susanna's like this full-time school teacher, right, John, who went to Notre Dame and was no good and is now like a 225, 226 marathoner? Yeah, she's one of the great stories in the sport. The person at USATF, some names in this email, we leave them out. If they view their job as like, I'm making people's dreams reality, I'm helping people achieve a lifelong dream, they'd be like bending over left and right to make sure Susanna can go. They wouldn't care what kit she said. Oh my God, with this opportunity, it came up, go for it. You know, it's like you hear the story of like the janitor, the janitor at the airport. And they're like, wow, it must be a tough job. And he's like, I help, you know, make people's travel better. Like they get to see the world and like experience these things. Like You can turn any job to such a different perspective. But like this one isn't that hard to do. My God. All right, guys, let's move on to the men's senior race. And this was awesome for a different reason, because the weather changed so severely from the women's race, it was th- really three different weather days in Australia. You had really hot and sunny for the relays and the junior races. Then the clouds come in and it starts getting humid for the women's senior race. 
And then the men's senior race, they moved it up by 20 minutes because there was a thunderstorm coming in. And if there was lightning within about 10 kilometers of the course, I think they had to stop the race is what Nicole Jeffrey from the World, from World Athletics told me. So this proved to be a very important decision because within 15 minutes, there was a huge lightning strike near the course and it probably would have had to be called off. So by the time this race is happening, it feels like it's the end of the world because the skies are getting really dark. The wind has picked up. It's blowing sand and dirt all over the course. It's very stiff. And it no longer feels like really super hot and humid. It's because this wind is just canceling everything out. So crazy conditions. And Jacob Kiplimo, he did what Latessa Mbagide could not. The final lap, it was awesome. It comes down. We've got Kip Limo, Joshua Cheptegei, the reigning champion, the world record holder in the 5,000, 10,000, Jeffrey Kamwara, the two-time world cross champion, and Berahu Aragawi, the Ethiopian champion. Those are the four guys left, and I'm like, this is going to be a slugfest. It was exactly the race we wanted to see. The only guy who wasn't there, Salomon Borrega, the Ethiopian Olympic champion in the 10,000 meters. I'm like, man, there's going to be back and forth. People are going to be making moves. Cheptegei kind of takes off. He tries to push it. They can't drop anyone. And then Jacob Kiplimo, a little earlier than Gade moved, he makes his move. He gets a gap. is the only one who even kind of goes with him. And then suddenly it's over. Kiplimo, he gets to the vineyard section, which I loved. He's got a big lead, and he just keeps growing it and cruises. He It doesn't look hard at all for him. And there's wind blowing everywhere. He's facing some of the best distance runners in the entire world. This is supposed to be difficult, and Jacob Kiplimo, he made it look like he was just going for a casual stroll on his track instead of this brutal course in Australia. I, I was so impressed. He wins it comfortably. He's celebrating. He's whooping it up at the end as he comes in. He's your champion, 29-17, nine seconds ahead of Aragawi. Cheptegei's third. Just holding off Jeffrey Camwara. They both got the same time, 29.37. And then you've got, after them, another 20 seconds to Kibawak Kandier, who's a 57.32 half marathoner. Kiplimo just destroyed this field. It was incredibly, incredibly impressive. When I clicked on the senior men's results, I don't remember if I thought, like, okay, what are my expectations? I was really trying to do it that way. I think I may have been just so shocked by the women's results. I'm like, okay, just go to the men and see what happens. And I just remember thinking, okay, wow, Kiplimo, nine seconds. That's a lot. And then I just saw the big names behind him. And then I see Cheptegei and Camwar at the same time, which was kind of cool. So super impressive. I mean, look, he's almost a minute up on 10th plate. And I guess the question really now for him is, you know, he's a former junior champion. I guess he's what? The half marathon world record holder, right, John? That's correct. And the half marathon world champion from 2020. But people are immediately debating like, okay, you know, can he now do it on the track? For some reason, you know, if you don't do it on the track, you're not as good as legitimate as people to do it. Is he going to be sort of a Zersene Tedese type guy who was a world cross country champion, dominant the half marathon, but never did anything on the track of real significance? Or is he going to now be sort of the man to beat in the 10,000? Because, the thing he's got going for him, not that Chepta guy is old. He's 26. Cam Wars, what, 30? But Chepta, 
Caprimo, and, and I, I know there's some people saying, but the Africans lie about their ages. This guy's 22, and he's young. He's always looked young. I know you can't judge somebody by just how they look. I mean, Al Webb was balding at 18, but you know he could just be entering his prime now. Well, the one thing about Kip Limo, where I've always been a little suspect of his age, is he ran 27-26 in July of 2016, when officially he was 15 years old. Even for someone as talented as Kip Limo, 27-26 at age 15 strikes me as a little hard to believe. But yeah, I think he's younger than Cheptegei. And Robert, you make a good, you make an interesting point. Is he the new guy, or is he going to be more like Camora or Turgot or Tedesse, who's really good at the roads and cross, but doesn't quite have the closing speed for the track? I'd say it's more like that. But it also got me thinking about Joshua Cheptegei, and that I thought Joshua Cheptegei was like, okay, this he might be the premier dominant runner of his era. He's probably won more accolades than any of these other guys all combined. You know, when you look at their career in total, it's like, okay, he's the world record holder, Olympic champion, world champion on the track. But he's not the inevitable all-conquering force that Kenny Sabakele was in his prime or that Mo Farah was in his prime. And I'm kind of curious. It makes me wonder about Cheptegei guy because does he get to the world championships this year? Is he still the favorite in the 5K and 10K? Or in the 10K, I think he's probably underdog to Ingebrigtsen in the 5K. Like, maybe we just don't have one clear dominant guy. We have a lot. We have Borrego. We've got Cheptegei. We've got Kiplimo. We've got Berahu Arigawi in there. We've got a lot of talented guys, but maybe not, not one standout. Uh which I don't think is the worst thing to have. I mean, maybe that's short-changing guy a little bit because he did set the world records in the 5 and 10, and he's won a gold medal, at least one, and he should have lost three championships. I'd say he's the premier guy, but I wouldn't go be like, oh, guy, it's it's just game over. He's like he's probably the best in the 10K, but he did say going in his preparation, he had an injury in the full. sounded like he was supposed to be pretty good now. I don't know how much it affected his preparation because they didn't make everyone available in the mix zone because of the weather, but it's possible that injury was more significant than it was let on. I mean, a new, unique thing about our sport is the best person like usually wins. As Robert pointed out earlier, there's not a lot of randomness, but I think parody can be a good thing. Not having one dominant force. I mean, Tedeschi, I was looking it up. He got a silver at Worlds one year, bronze at the Olympics. He was in the Bekele area era. I mean, you could have been really good at 10K and you're not beating him, right? So, but the one thing he didn't have is the marathon. He never figured it out. I mean, it's sort of shocking. Whereas the tour guts of the world, you know, oh, poor Paul, you know, Mr. Silver on the track at 10K, but he did have the world record at the marathon, won a ton of world cross-country titles. So I think you'd rather be, even though Tedesi was pretty good, if the worst thing we say about Kiplino, Kiplimo is, oh, he's Paul Turgot. <laughs> he still can turn out pretty well, especially today with the marathon. He could be you know, one of the greatest marathoners ever. But I'm not rooting him out on the track, and I think that's a great thing because Cheptegei, his track career, right, John? There have been holes in it. He loses the 10 in Tokyo, comes back and somehow wins the five. That sort of shocks everybody. 
and then reversed it last year at Worlds. So he hasn't been the dominant force. He showed he's vulnerable a lot of the time, and that happened here. Yeah, it's all pretty interesting. I mean, I remember after the Olympics, we all think, oh, you know, Chepty guy wins his gold medal. I guess he didn't win the 10, but he's a world record holder. But then he loses to Caplimo in the half marathon. Or, excuse me, Caplimo sets the world record in the half marathon. I guess that wasn't the year they ran worlds together. But there's been a couple times where I thought, is Chepty guy even the best guy in his own country? But I think, you know, Caplimo's got two medals on the track, just not gold medals. So that's say won two medals in his entire career. So, you know, it, yeah, it's interesting. Like, you know, well, it's about Turgot and comparing him to Caplimo. The difference was Turgot was totally dominant in cross country. We haven't found anything that that Caplimo has been totally dominant about, but it could be like the half marathon, you know, since they don't have world cross every year, although they're going to have it next year. Maybe he's totally dominant like Camor, like a world cross and world half back in his early 20s. But one other thing is maybe he moves to the marathon and maybe he's the guy that takes over for Kipchoge. So it's just. Oh, I think he could be. I think if Kipchoge, if that world record stays at 20109, Kiblimo could be the guy who's the first sub 201 marathoner. I think it's more likely Kipchoge does it at some point, but he's that good. If, especially now that we've got like Kelvin Kiptum debuting at 201. Like, oh, if he can do that, what can Kiblimo do? And we really haven't talked about the guy that finished second here, Beruhu Aragawe. And I think this was just terrible news for Grant Fisher and all Grant Fisher fans. Because going into Worlds last year, everyone's Fisher setting all these American records. He's doing so well. You know, people are thinking, oh, he's got a medal. And I'm like, no, he doesn't. Do you guys realize how many good guys there are now? There's so many good runners. Now, I mean, we had six guys that we two from Uganda, two from Canada, two from me that we were debating who was going to win this race. But I was like, Fisher's gotten better, but Aragawa's younger than him and has also gotten better. Fisher was fifth in the Olympic 10,000. Aragawa was fourth. And then last year at the Prefontaine Classic, remember, this is the guy that ran 12.50 and just destroyed the field by like, just gapped the field early on and just beat everybody like 10 seconds. And then he goes to Worlds and doesn't do well in the 10K, 27.31. Yes, Fisher beat him there. But then the Ethiopians sort of panic and kick him off the 5,000 team. Why? Because they're going to put Borrego, who's the Olympic champion of the 10 on the team. And he doesn't, so he doesn't get a chance to medal there. So he's never medaled, but he's super, super good. And I just think Fisher's amazing. I hope he ends up being regarded as a better runner than Galen Rupp. Because there's so many questions about Rupp with his association with Salazar. But if I'm if I'm a betting agency and I put the over under for total global medals for Grant Fisher at 0.5. I think I'm going to bet and put even odds. I'm going to take the negative and say he never medals at a world championship. And at the beginning of the show, I asked, was he one of the biggest losers of the week? Like I wish he was at world cross. He didn't go, but I'm not going to ding him too much. Why? Cause he was he went to France and ran one of the greatest indoor three thousands in history. Well, I met your set the world record. And I was so excited that an American had a legitimate shot to win this race. I think 30% of the people in Let's Run thought he was going to win this race. And around 30% of the people thought the world record was going to go down. So an American had about a 10% chance, if you multiply those two together, to set the world record in France. So he's incredibly good. 
I just think there's so many other guys that are really good. It's going to be tough. Now, maybe there's enough worlds. Sometimes these guys move to the road. Sometimes they don't double back. Maybe he can sneak a bronze in there. What do you think? I would take the over because we do have a bunch of championships coming up. He was very close in both races in 2022, Robert. He was fourth in the 10K and he would have medaled, I think, in the 5K if he hadn't chopped up his steps. So I still think he gets at least one. But like you said, it, it's really, really tough. And the good thing is he did, he runs the 5 and the 10. He's probably going to be on the team every time if he's healthy. But it is very difficult. This is a very competitive era of distance running. Part of the problem with Grant's the events he's in. The 5 and the 10... There's very little tactics. You pretty much need to be one of the top three fittest guys in that day. You know, if you're in the 15, there's a lot more randomness. You think there's more randomness? Not with the way the 15s run this, these days. With the 15, you got to be one. Of, you got to be able to run 328. With the shoes, it seems like a lot of guys sure, sure can do it. Uh, no, that's not true. You still got to be really, really fit. The 1500 has become less and less random. All right. No, no, we'll no, no. Well, well, Weldon's totally right about this. The 1500 has tactics, and the guys get hurt a lot in the 1500. Like, the, doing speed work, they pull a hamstring. Like, Philip Ingrich gets some, the guy that getting, a, you know, uh, getting the bronze is a different guy every year. Other year. That's the same but, thing in the 5 and 10. I mean, I guess Kip Lebo got two straight. John, you're the track historian. Yeah. Other than Galen Rupp, When's the last time an American-born athlete medaled in the five or 10,000 meters out of Worlds or Olympics? Men? Correct. I'm guessing it was 1964 with Billy Mills, Bob Schull, and Bill Dellinger. I'm just saying that's what Fisher, Fisher's... And it's probably harder now because there's more Africans. It's just he's going up against just a stacked deck. This show wasn't like, even born in America either, so. Oh, there you got my point, John. Yep. So, hey, maybe, maybe actually that means he can medal because he was born in Canada. But the only person to do it in, what, 60 years is a guy whose coach has been banned for life. But I know those who think that everyone's doping are like, but Fisher trains with his right-hand man, Jerry Schumacher. Jerry Schumacher is not and never has been Alberto Salazar's right hand man. Anyway, that's right. false, John. That is false. That is no. He was hired to be false. He wasn't his right hand man. He was basically hired to be an assistant and sorry, he was hired to be his successor. But the group splintered quickly. I mean, me. All right, maybe it was for a year or something. I I don't know if it, I don't know if you'd ever describe that as their relationship. Well. But if they hire someone to come in to be the assistant, I think you're the right-hand man at that point. It quickly Well, the fractured. successor. I don't know if he was the assistant. I think he was more the successor, right? Because when we when we get to USATF indoors, the big controversy before was in 2014. And I'd forgotten that Alberto and Jerry had to be physically separated from each other. These are two Nike coaches. That was nine years ago. That's crazy. All right, let's put a bow on here on World Cross Country. First, a couple shout-outs. One, Sam Chalanga. 21st place, top American. For the second time in his career, he was 11th in 2017 at World Cross in Uganda. 21st here. Both tough conditions for those races. He's 37 years old. He quit the sport five years ago and then came back. We just got to give some respect to Sam Chalanga. This guy's an amazing cross-country runner. 
He was two-time NCAA champion in cross, almost three, lost out to Galen Rupp in a sprint finish. He just shows up and, I mean, 21st, all right, he's not close to the medals, but I don't think anyone was expecting Sam Shalane to do that. 21st, that was a great run for him. Emmanuel Bohr, the U.S. champion, he was only 32nd. He said he got sick a couple days before the race. Bad timing for him. I think he would have been more competitive, obviously. I think he's a better runner than Sam Chalanga, but we never, we don't really know what he, we would have seen a full strength manual board doing this race. Then let's give a shout out to the junior athletes because the US under 20 men and under 20 women both come away with team medals. And let's start with the women because I think the women's result was more impressive. They get third in this race. Okay. You know, maybe some teams aren't totally full strength, but. If you look, there's really two powers in women's distance running. It's Ethiopia and Kenya. And U.S. was number three behind them. Usually Japan is getting the bronze in this race. The U.S. beat Japan head-to-head. Ellie Shea was 10th overall. She's a junior in high school. That's the best finish by an American women's junior athlete at this meet since Melody Fairchild got the bronze in 1991. And then right behind her, Irene Riggs, the NXN champion. She's 12th. Carrie Beloga, the footlocker champion, she's 13th. And Zariel Makia, who is the U.S. cross champion in 2022, she's 19th. That's a team of high schoolers. So all of them except Riggs will be coming back next year if they choose to, getting the bronze medal at the World Champs, the first ever by a U.S. junior team. On the women's side, that's terrific. And then the men's race, similar. They, they weren't quite as impressive as the women, and they also benefited Eritrea, which is often a medalist here, did not send a team. And Uganda sounded like they had visa problems. They had three athletes, but they didn't have enough for a full scoring team. All three of the Ugandans finished ahead of the Americans. But they didn't have a full team. So the U.S. gets the team bronze medal led by Leo Young in 18th place. Really impressive stuff for them. It was fun to see those kids so excited. You got to talk to them. The joy, the like. Apparently, you, John. People were getting mad at Jonathan Galt in the mix zone because the U.S. boys, when John was interviewing them, were making so much noise. Some of the journalists were like, "You got to quiet them down." John's like, "I'm not making the noise; they're making the noise." So, um, really cool to, to see those those young people want to represent the country, get a free trip. Hopefully, that you know all the other. Teenagers, because remember, like the last time we had a world cross country was four years ago. We had someone posting on the message board that they were at the Footlocker, you know, what's it called? Whatever the Footlocker is called now, Champs Sports Championships in California. And they were telling the juniors about this race, and a lot of them didn't know about it or wanted to go. But now when they see the Youngs going and Irene Riggs going, except maybe everybody will want to go. But looks like, well, then we've lost John with internet some problems. But he was complaining heading into. Australia, it was very hard to get a visa. And they wanted him to get a special visa that costed $300. He's like, it shouldn't cost me $300 to get in the country. I said, John, John, just just don't don't complain. It's on the Let's Run card, credit card. He didn't realize I was sending some extra money for the visa agencies to decline the visas to the Ugandan athletes so that the U.S. junior boys would get that medal. That's a joke, people. Having some audio issues here behind the scenes with John in Australia. I guess that underground cable got cut. But 
And John wasn't here to cut Robert off from just going on about some long-winded thing about blocking the Ugandan visas. In terms of juniors, the boys were so pumped. And they also delirious. We cut out part of this video because, like, they were so excited. And one of them had, like, essentially passed out on the course. Like, I, I've never seen something like this. John was like, do you think we can play this whole video? We made the exact... This is probably the first time John, as a journalist, made the discretion. He's like, I don't think the whole video should go up. Well, one of the athletes, Weldon, was so dehydrated or whatever. It's It seemed like he was drunk. Like, he stumbled into the interview area and was just yelling. And I was like, whoever released him from whatever medical station he was in, he was like, yeah, I almost passed out. And I'm like, what do you mean you almost passed out? Like, whoever released him, I don't think they should have released him because he was certainly not ready to go in front of a camera. He's only a teenager. I didn't feel it was fair to when he, he's probably not going to remember anything that happened, but they were understandably pumped. It was awesome. And the funny thing is they start chanting USA, USA. And there is something of a stereotype of the obnoxious American around the world. And I'm going to say that that wasn't well received in the mix zone because other people were trying to do interviews at the same time. Another journalist came up to me afterwards. He's like, you have to have more quiet interviews. Like (laughs) no one else can hear anything. They can't do their own interviews. Like this is a shared space. I was like, I'm sorry, man. I wasn't the one yelling USA. It was those guys. So they were very excited. I can understand why. Um, and it was a good run. It was a really tough course. They ran a really smart race. They stayed patient. I, I was very impressed by by all of them. I don't like John. I didn't know about this editing of a interview. Doesn't surprise me. John did it to protect a bunch of males. Medical professionals. I'm serious. Can you get like delirium or something from like almost passing out in a race, passing out in a race. I've never seen something like this. It was crazy. Robert, I'll send you the clip. In terms of the women, play it back next year. They need to go back to Croatia. And, I mean, just great running all around. Let's give a shout out to the coaches. Normally, I think the coaching staff is like, just like you're the Olympic coach. It doesn't mean anything. All you do is tell people to get on a bus. But in this case, these junior athletes on the men's side, credit the Oklahoma State coach Dave Smith for telling them, like, look, you guys have got to go out conservatively and have something left. And they were only sixth place halfway and then I'm getting the medal. And I'm, Katie McGregor was the U.S. women's coach. I don't know if she told the women something similar. So it did help. And I actually was talking to Dave at the USA Championships in Richmond. I said, man, I'm hoping to see you out there. I love seeing you at World Cross because he goes a lot. I'm like, do you get a lot out of it? Do you get like recruiting? He's like, no, I wasn't really planning on going. They just kind of called me last minute. So I'm glad that he did get something out of it. Like he actually helped this team win a medal. And it's a shame that the storm blew in because John, I really wanted you to interview him. I assume Dave got up in the middle of the night. Cause like a few hours before his Oklahoma state men broke the NCAA DMR record. They ran nine sixteen forty. 249 opening leg, 46, eight, 147, two, and then a three fifty two anchor for Ryan Scopey. So pretty cool. I don't know how many hour period it was about 12 hours for Dave Smith. So I'm glad the trip ended up. His guys can run well without him shows and the juniors probably needed some good coaching anyways. All right. I don't know how long we've been on. Cause we have these, all these audio problems behind the scenes. 
Fuck. Let's talk about some of these world records, USA's, and get out of here. We talked a little about that 3K world record. Lometra Germa, this is another reason why it's going to be hard for Fisher to medal. Like, Germa's another stud who hasn't medaled. I know he's not normally in the 5,000. He's often in the steeple, but set the world record, 723.9. And that was a cool race because the race until the final 100, we didn't know who was going to win the race and the world record was going to go down. So super cool. But this weekend, a couple more world records. Femke Bowl, 49.26, beating this world record from Krachikova that stood since 82. And what do you guys think? Like She's running a second, 1.04 seconds faster than she was last year indoors. Does that mean her 400 hurdles is going to come down by 1.04 seconds? Because if it does, then she's running 50.99, which is the time that Sydney McLaughlin's only beaten one time in her life. Robert, this performance was the first time where I thought, oh, it's possible Bowl could beat Sydney McLaughlin Lavroni this year if they both ran the 400 hurdles at Worlds. She ran 49.9 a week earlier. I was like, all right, that's good, but I'm pretty sure Sydney could do that. 49.2, taking down a Kurtoch Vilova world record and great thing for the sport that her name's not in the record books for this because I think everyone believe she was doping for that race 49.2 indoors a, such a big improvement from she was already a stud in the hurdles you know running 52 low last year she ran 51 sorry 52.0 in 2021 she was close to that 52.2 in Eugene I was like alright before I think Sydney wouldn't have to be on her A game to win. Now I think Sydney in Budapest, if Bowl can keep this going, Sydney will have to be on her A game. She was in Eugene and she was in Tokyo. Like Sydney, the one thing about her, she shows up and she runs her best when it matters. She's run world records in each of her last four US or World Olympic finals. So she's going to be ready. Bowl has to make sure she's there and come up with a brilliant performance. But yeah, this did change my mind in terms of what I think Bowl's capable of doing. I think low 51 for her or sub 51 even, that's on the table. And let's also remember she's a year, well, she's six months younger than Sydney, but she is younger than Sydney as well. John, I'll ask you the question that I asked Weldon offline. There was an interesting thread in Let's Run about whether Sydney should be worried or not, because it's not that much of an outright PR for Bull. Like she did run 49, I think, three or four outdoors last year. So it's like, but indoors is normally slower than outdoors. So I think this puts her in the 48th highs at a minimum. Outdoors, which I know McLaughlin's put 47.9, but that's like a 48.6 or 7 if you, don't, if you don't count the relay. So they're kind of similar. I still think McLaughlin's going to probably win. But this thread was saying, no, no, Bull's not as good of a hurdler as Sydney. She's too tall for the hurdle. So, John, here's the question for you. Who's taller, Sydney McLaughlin or Femke Bull? And please give me their approximate heights. I'm going to say Bull is Bull's 5'9 and Sydney's 5'8. I don't know. I'm trying to think. This person claimed Bull was 6'1. I just typed it into, into Google. It says six feet. But she's in McLaughlin's 5'9. So she is three inches taller. No. And. With the women's hurdles heights being relatively lower than the men, it's not really that. But you don't actually want to be that tall because it's just people are saying it's it's less efficient for her. So kind of interesting stuff there. So it's just great for the sport to have these rivalries, to have a lot of people that can win, to have this all-time great 
as I said on the message board, it reminds me of like Federer. Federer comes on, you're like, how could anyone play tennis like this? And that's what we're seeing with Sydney. But then Bowles at least making us think, hey, you know, we see this from the men's side. Can two or three people be at this super, super high level all at once? Well, the other thing I want to praise Bowl, she's running an indoor season. She went to World Indoors last year and took on Shawnee Miller Weibo. She ran the Dutch Indoor Championships. I guess they do have a Euro Indoors this year, but she's going out there and racing a bunch, which is awesome. That's what we'd love to see some of the American stars do. And I know what we get brilliant performances by Sydney McLaughlin Lavroni outdoors, but Femke Bowl's been pretty brilliant outdoors as well. So I like that she's racing. I'll credit Grant Fisher as well. He flew over to Leven. The reason why he skipped Milrose is because he wanted to race the very best in the entire world. And Leven was a stronger field than Milrose. We saw that by the times. So, you know, Bauman, we're like, oh, Bauman, they just hole up at altitude. They don't race. No, they sent Grant Fisher over to race Leven against the very best guys in the world. Huge props to him for going and doing that race as well. So thank you for racing, stars of track and field. Yeah, Simke Bulls like the winner of indoors. I mean, the world record is shocking. I was about to say, John, do you know the name Nicola Sanders being British? Not really. I think she got a world indoor silver, but she ran 50.02 indoors and 49.65 outdoors. So not that much difference. I mean, Sydney does, she, she just, she always performs her best. So why would, could she lose? But the fact we're having the converse, this conversation is a great thing. But I wish Sydney was racing like him Kabul. But that's the whole issue with our quirky little spurt sport. <laughs> I think we'll go to Ryan Krauser first. Well, it's all related, right? Let's go to Ryan Krauser right now. Ryan, what was this weekend? The U.S. Indoor Championships in Albuquerque. And what? Where was Ryan Krauser? He was at the Simpot Games, which is a high school meet in Idaho. They have an exhibition pro shot put. And he breaks the, crushes the indoor world record. I can't believe there's that much of a difference between the indoor world record and the outdoor world record and beats the outdoor all-time world record, the outdoor one, by one centimeter. Does this on his first throw. The other curious thing is Ryan said at Milrose he was going to unveil a new throw, I think, on throw three. He's got a new technique. And his best performance came before throw, throw three. This one, he did the safe throw on throw one, crushes the world record on it. He thought maybe he could break the indoor world record. He breaks both of them on the first one. Then he goes to the new system after that and doesn't throw as far. Can we can we stop this new system, man? Or maybe somehow the fact that he's working on the new system is helping the old system? But like, it's sort of crazy. But also... I mean, this is high school track meet, a bunch of people paying attention to this stuff, but like, I don't know. This was the weekend. It's set aside to have indoor championships. I think at some point, World Athletics should say, sorry, that mark doesn't count. I, I, yeah, I well, know. it was cool Just, because he also broke the high school record at this same meet, but we've said it before when athletes have skipped USA indoors to run time trials. There should not, if you're a professional track and field runner in the United States, you should not be able to compete on the weekend of USA Indoors unless it is at the US Indoor Championships. There should not be any professional meets. There should not be any sections, pro sections in high school meets. It should be USA Indoors or you're not competing that weekend. 
Yeah, I think it shouldn't count because if Ryan Krauser breaks the world record in practice, and even if a USATF certified official is there and measures the tape, it doesn't count. I think that rule actually needs to be put in place. And I used to hey. rant and rave, why don't athletes take indoors seriously? They don't. USATF needs to make it more amenable to them. But also the, the shoe companies with their bonuses and stuff, they don't care if you go compete on TV before, I assume, NBC's on NBC got, I mean, indoors and NBC got a million people watching. Or if you go throw on the internet and no one sees you, like they don't care. I mean, if you break the world record, obviously you get attention from that, but like the shoe companies don't seem to care where you compete. So the athletes don't compare, but they also keep throwing it at an Albuquerque, which a lot of athletes are sick of going to. Look, in theory, we've said you shouldn't be able to, like, to get a 10K qualifier during the weekend of World Cross Country if you're skipping and stuff like that. I've got zero problem with this. I thought this was great for the sport. If we didn't pay Max Siegel $3 million a year, maybe we'd pay more than $4,000 for first in USA's and he would bother to go to that. Everybody in this meet, it was, it was Krauser and a bunch of collegians and then a bunch of high schoolers, but just in the shot put. Everyone was into it. They had a breakfast. They made it big. Millions of people have seen the throw online. It, it's fine with me. There was one quote from him from a pre-meet article in Idaho State Journal. Like They had a feature on him. So in Idaho, this was a big deal. They had a big crowd. The crowd was really into it. So I'm fine with it. He said, quote, I feel like for me, I've never been motivated, especially by records, and the title of being the best ever. I remember talking to Mac Wilkins, the Olympic gold medalist in the discus and a former world record holder. He was saying it's a bit frustrating when you set your goal to be a world record holder because when you get it, where do you go from there? That really resonated with me. So for the longest time, I've tried to focus my perspective on myself so all I can do is perform at my best. That's why he's changing it. He thinks there's a way to throw it even farther and he wants to make the greatest throw that he could ever make and something that nobody can ever touch. So I think he kind of is motivated actually. I've read an article, the other article, where he just wants to just put it so far out there. But I just think it's cool. Good for him. In the intro of the show, I said, should we put an asterisk next to it? Because, look, look, if you go run a sprint race at altitude, I want to have Noah Lyles or somebody go break 21, uh, 19 seconds at altitude. It would still count as a world record. But we have these charts that convert altitude sprint times. Do we have that for throws? Because where is this in Idaho, John? Boise? Pocatello. And I do think your point there, Robert, I do appreciate that there did seem like the crowd was into it. Sounded like he was someone's on the message board said he was signing autographs for an hour afterwards. So I, that is, that is good for the sport. I'm not, I mean, it's nice to have him at USA's, but I I do agree with your point. It's nice to have an event like that. Right. This thing actually got more attention than it would have at USA indoors and some uh, like, but I, because they had people, there was pre-meet hype on it, I guess, in town and this sort of stuff. But I think as a general rule, it would be better for the sport if they put in the rule saying, I'm sorry, you can't do this. Yeah, like would, this, there would be another well, event be great, you could do this. Like, it would be great if this meet was the week after USA's. Right. You know, like that. They would so make I, it I, work yeah. out. Look, but now Pocatello is at 4,400 feet. Like, is the shot so heavy that it doesn't have one centimeter? Just wondering. Now, you know how I've talked about on the podcast, and I keep claiming I'm going to write this article, I haven't. We should have Diamond League in the off year. Like, the world's 1500 is in Monaco, and then use other Diamond Leagues to qualify for Monaco. Then you have the 5,000 in a different city, and each Diamond League has a, few, a couple of worlds. So each fence big. I have said we could have USAs the same way. So, and give it to small towns. So Ithaca, New York, where I used to coach for 10 years, the, six, the USA 60 final will be in Ithaca. 
and you get 2,000 people to show up just for that one event. This showed you in Idaho, you don't have to have a lot of events, just one event with a big name. People show up. It's in town. It's exciting. They watch it. Everyone in the goes to watch the 60 final. And you have all these simulcasts being fed up on NBC. So it's kind of like college game day when it comes to your town. It's a big deal. Well, the 60 is in Ithaca and all the college, yay, let's go Noah Lyles. And then they go to Idaho for the shot put final. And it's, yay, that would be cool. That would be create, you know, and you're getting that idea for me for free. I don't even make $3 million a year. Actually, Robert, that would be genius, right? They should have had the shot put at the Simplot games. Kovacs would go. The crazy thing is Joe Kovacs, he was behind, he got behind in this thing. He won his first USATF indoor title. Never won one before. So kudos to him for showing up. Are we missing a world record, John, or can we talk about USATF indoors? Bowl, Gama, and Krauser, those are the three world records. Oh, I mean, one... Anna Hall broke the world record in the pentathlon. She came nine points shy on Thursday, and then she came back and won the 400. She's only 21 years old. Anna Hall's a star. She's amazing. She's 21? Yeah. Wow. What about the, the oh my god! I was record? I was probably. When, when have you ever seen a heptathlon, pentathlon athlete win an open four hundred, John, at USA's? Like, never. Yeah. Now, granted, it's USA indoors; it's not USA outdoors, but still, like she ran a she ran a big PB. I don't know what the I need to look it all up, but I was really impressed with that. It's just like wow, I liked it. It was great, and. Germa thing, there's a thread on here. This is shows how some of these tables and stuff aren't that great. It's by Brigham Old, is the poster. Well, Mecca Germa's 3000 world record is the single best track performance ever, 800 to 10K. And he does all the conversions. It's better than Komen's record. It's a 2611, 1234, 140.8. I don't buy it. They need to redo the tables. Yeah. I mean, indoor track, the fast indoor tracks we know are just as fast as outdoor tracks so see ran 723 Komen ran 720 outdoors sorry Komen's is still more impressive all right distance at usa's first day 3000 unsponsored how is she still unsponsored val constein didn't she make the olympics wins her first u.s title 848-29 over whitney morgan emily mccabe ellie hennis abby nichols and courtney wayment Sam Prakel wins the men's 3,000. On day two, Nia Aikens wins her first title, 2 flat point one six. And then Bryce Hopple wins the men's 800, 145.92. That was kind of an interesting race to me because Isaiah Harris had the lead, and he looked smooth. looked like Hopple was really struggling. And then the final 100 meters, Harris had nothing left, and Hopple just didn't slow down. So it just it was the perfect example of the 800s about who slows down the least. Well, it was also the perfect example, Robert, of your adage, you only get one move in the 800. Because Isaiah Harris made a huge move on the back straight of the second to last lap to take the lead. And I was like, wow, that's pretty early, but Isaiah Harris is good. He looked smoother. I don't know if they've been working on his running form at all, but Harris, he usually runs with his shoulders bunched up. It always looks like a very painful way to run. He looked more relaxed at this meet. But like you said, Hopple just ran him down and Hopple had made it look easy. You know, he just passed him. Hopple looked like he was out for a jog and Harris was totally tying up. Harris, 26.5 for his penultimate 200, and then 28.02 for his last 200, whereas Hubble closed in 26.7 and 27.3. But that was a fun one. 
But on the negative side, Clayton Murphy, DFL in the final. At least he made the final, I guess. But last year, normally he runs 143 every year. He doesn't break 145, fourth at USA's. This year, opens up at 146 indoors. He had a run in the 220. But those were like his best performances. So, I don't know, man. I know he's got a new kid and everything. I really hope he turns around outdoors because he's been struggling here for a little bit. But, I mean, if anyone I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt, well, Tim, obviously because he's a podcast guest, he may be a supporters club member. And I didn't ask him, but there sure is an email in the supporters club that looks like it's his real email. So... But we need to know that for the records, you know, like supporters club records, national titles, that sort of stuff. And then the 1500s. Nikki Hiltz won their first U.S. title, 417.10. Sage Hurtaclecker almost had it, 417.26 on the girls' side. But one, this is all, you know, we don't have a lot of time. I'm talking about the men's race here. Sam Prakel completes the double. If you look at the results, 342.62 over Henry Wynn. But if you actually watch this race live or on replay like I did, what a disgrace. With 400 to go, Casey Canevelbeard of Under Armour took a big lead. Henry Wren started to run him down. He was being tracked by Josh Thompson and Sam Prackle. Going into the final turn, Henry Wren and, and Josh Thompson are right there. Josh Thompson comes by him, briefly bumps him with his, as they're coming off the turn. Wynn put his hand up a little bit, kind of like when a car is cutting in too close to you, you kind of tap on the horn just to let you know, hey, I'm there. But Thompson was clearly the best guy over the last, in the straightaway. Wynn's comfortably, his face looks relaxed. Preco comes up for what was at the time second place, looks second best, and the Wynn looks totally spent, looked like he just mistimed his kick, third place. They do the interviews, everybody goes home, and then our sport does it again. They DQ Josh Thompson after the fact. Like, how many times are we going to say it? This is disgraceful. The fans and the athletes need to know before they leave the track if there's a potential disqualification. In the NFL, you throw the flag. So if the flag is not called, if an official wants to call a flag, we don't even need him to raise that flag. We need an NFL-type beanbag thrown up in the air in the in the. <laughs> Yes. TV commentators need to say there's a flag and then they announce what it is and then they go to the replay booth and they do it right there and then and there. No 15, 20, 30 minutes. None of this crap. It needs to be done spectator friendly within five minutes and that's it. Totally agree with you on this, Robert, because yeah, the broadcast ends. Josh Thompson is the champion and then it, we find out after the broadcast is over, oh, there's a DQ and it doesn't even say what the DQ is for on the web the timing site. It's just like, this is ridiculous. But the other thing is your scenario, I totally agree with it, but under the USATF rules, that's not how it works right now because this DQ didn't come from the officials saying anything. It came because there was an appeal. I think it was by Henry Wynn or his coach, Danny Mackey. One of those two appealed this result. And that's what caused them to disqualify him. It wasn't the official signaling there was a foul there so you know maybe now, you give John, all the coaches challenge flags as well i'm not sure right 
John, wait a second. We're recording this podcast a day early. At least Robert and I are. It's Monday here. It's Tuesday where you are. But how do you know there was an appeal? I kind of figured there was, but I haven't. It's... Did you reach out to anyone? It's kind of Bush League, in my opinion, if there was an appeal here. But is this sport going to be enter the modern era or not? Like, let's get with it. Let's have an appeal. I think throwing a flag up would be great. Bring some drama to the sport. Those officials will probably be flag happy. We'd have a review right there. It'd bring some drama to the broadcast. But, John, how do you know there was an appeal filed? So I'll just say, I'm not sure if the source wants me to reveal the name, but I heard from a source that the head judge reviewed film of the race, said there was no DQ, it was just incidental contact, and then there was an appeal filed, and they looked at it again, they decided there was a DQ, and Josh Thompson was disqualified. I reached out to Danny Mackey, I wanted to know if he was the person, because I wasn't 100% sure, but I'm guessing it had to be either Henry or Danny, who filed this appeal. I reached out to Danny to get more information. He hasn't responded to me yet, but I am very confident that initially there wasn't a disqualification until this appeal. This is so wrong at so many levels, and I made a, a YouTube video about this, but this reminds me of another DQ we've had in Albuquerque, 2014, involving another Brooks athlete. Gabby Grunewald, rest in peace. In the 3,000 that year, on the final, at the first turn of the final lap, she bumped into Jordan Hesse, blew her doors off, won her title, and then, after the fact, Salazar files an appeal, and yes, she technically bumped her, so technically she should be disqualified, and she was, even though it had no impact on the race, and people went crazy. There was such an uproar that eventually Jordan Hesse basically said, I don't want the title, and gave it back. But since then, I think because of this and other DQs, the rule book has been added. There's there's clarification in the rule book. It says some factors to be considered when determining a DQ include safety, equitable competition, severity of the infraction, and resulting consequence. To me, he barely touched him. But the severity of the infraction, okay, it's in the final 50 meters. You want to pay super attention. I don't want people cutting people off in the final 50 meters. But if you look at this race, man, it was barely a bump, and he was fading anyways. If you're Henry Wynn, mom, maybe you think that impacted the race. Nobody else watching that race thinks it impacted the race. And I, I just, I, I like to say, if it was me, I went on the message board. I said, if that was me and one of my athletes at Cornell asked me to file appeal, I'd say, no way, dude. You got beat. And I really hope my boss at Cornell wouldn't want to win so badly that he would make me file the appeal. Because I'd be like, no, you lost. You were getting beat. It didn't cost you, etc. Ridiculous. I was so upset I made a video about it. Well, please put it up on Twitter with a poll and see what percent of people agree with me. Yeah, Robert, one thing about this DQ, it was certainly more severe than the Gabe Grunewald incident. That one she kind of brushed to say as she was going by. This one, there was contact, and you could say, I think Josh Thompson probably cut in before he had a step. Henry Wynn's stride was thrown off. It's not as if this was a nothing burger, but... I also think with just how both of them looked, using some judgment, and I don't think DQ was the correct call, but certainly, you know, if this happened a couple meters from the finish line, I think you would say, yeah, it is a DQ. But with it happening on the final turn, probably not. But I'm not going to pretend that there was zero conf conf contact and that didn't affect Henry Wynn at all, because it did. It's tough to write the rules right, John, because 
I am taking into account the, the caliber of these runners. I think John Thompson's better. And if the roles were reversed, maybe I think he really messed up his stride. And once you lose your momentum, you know, we saw once Grant Fisher hit the rail with 100 to go at Worlds, it's hard to get it back. I get it. But I just don't think it had it. But one thing about this, too, also, Weldon pointed this out. If we're going to be sticklers to the rules, can someone please, before I die, let me see a race be rerun? And I'm quoting from the rule book. The referee shall have the authority to order the race be reheld, excluding any disqualified competitors. This race should be reheld because Weldon said, Weldon, like, we're DQing Thompson for fouling win, but Preco was the one winning the national championship. Why should Sam Preco win the national championship? When should get a chance to race him again? So let's do it next weekend. USA Indoor again. 3,000 fly. Everybody back out. We'll leave Thompson at home. What a joke. No, Robert, this wasn't the race to be reheld. If they were ever going to reheld a race, it should have been the 2016 U.S. Women's 800 meters at the Olympic trials because that was a race where a fool just threw off everything in the race. But uh, yeah, I hope this happens at some point, but I'm trying, I'm struggling to think what the consequences would be like what, and also what scenario would have to lead to a race being rerun, maybe some out of control truck invades the track and wipes out the first three runners or some spectator storms the track and tackles someone there are very few scenarios I can envision where you'd actually have to rerun the entire race, but I think it would be cool to see. It would certainly be chaotic. Uh, my apologies to viewers listening at home. Who'd, the job would want the meet to continue on after three athletes have been plowed over by a truck. John would be there. Like, we must keep going. We must keep this meet going. It's like, I was hoping when the storm rolled in in Australia, I hope John was screaming in the tent. They paid good money for here. For, fly me here. I need interviews. Did that happen, John? No, it's funny. So I, I'm just hoping they'd be lightly, maybe lightly bumped. They wouldn't actually be run over and killed. If they're killed, you'd have to suspend the meat, obviously. But I, I was just hoping like a truck, you know, they have to dodge it or something. I don't know exactly. I don't even know how you get a truck on a track like that. But I was worried, though, during the storm because they have the, they have a media tent right at the finish line. And it's metal base and metal rods holding it up. And it's a, the whole thing's taking place in a big open field. And I'm like, uh-oh, if lightning is going to strike, and there's all this electronics here, this is one of the places it's going to strike. And Seb Coe had been in the media tribune for most of the races. And then I'm looking around the final race. He's no longer there. I'm like, uh-oh, he knows to go. Am I going to, like, is lightning going to strike the media tribune and I'm going to be killed and this is how my life ends? I, I was starting to think about that during the race. So I think it is probably best that they could have run out of that quickly. Wow. John, you may have just, I don't know when the next World Athletics elections are, but you could have just changed the course. The captain is supposed to go down with the ship. John, at least you would go out doing what you loved and they would probably name the press tribune at the World Cross Country and your name. We would spread your asses at the Brighton Stadium or something like that. But I don't know. I lost my train of thought. We were talking DQ at USA. Is we're talking World XE again? Oh, as a Cornell alum, John, I'd like to see the 2011 Worlds rerun. We can strip Jenny Simpson of her title. I think Morgan Euseni was going to win that race. All right, I got to get out of here. My wife has given me a five-minute hard countdown because an hour and a half podcast has taken two and a half hours because the internet apparently doesn't work in Australia. 
by the way, John, before you leave that country, please f- put something on the toilet, flush it. Because I filmed myself flushing and we promised the supporters club we'd do it last week and we didn't do it because my kid was vomiting. So I filmed it. You film it. will be good. But one last thing I got to talk about. I was watching some of the USA Indoor Meet on, on, on replay. And Will's like, have you seen the Craig Ingalls TV, uh, TV ad? And I said, what? He's like, yeah, they're running a Craig Ingalls ad nonstop. Nike has an ad and it's about how much running sucks. Normally Nike's ads are brilliant. This ad to me is borderline disgraceful. Like he said, running sucks except when I win or something like that. And the only cool part about it is normally they have good imagery. They do have someone doing a backflip into a waterhole, which I don't really get. But have you guys seen this, John? Are they showing the ad in Australia? What do you think of it? Oh, that was a Nike ad? Is that separate from the Team USA ad that Craig Engels was also in? Yes. You didn't see the backflip ad, John? I don't remember him. I remember them. I remember there was a line about him saying he didn't like running. I don't remember the backflip. Maybe I only saw that one once. I mostly saw this Team USA ad, which Craig was also in. But you saw the one, the ad starts, and he's like, I think the word is miserable. We'll play a clip here. We'll play a clip post-production here. He essentially says, running is miserable. And then later at the ad, you know, later at the end, he says he loves running. But I just thought it was a weird way to do it because I've never thought of running being miserable. Oh, I have. When I was in high school, I thought I hated running, and I would never run unless it was part of a team. And then I got to college and realized I actually liked the act of running and it was kind of fun. But I just, John, this is amazingly how bad the Nike ad is because you saw the Nike ad. I didn't even realize it's a Nike ad. They really put Nike up. Normally there's a swoosh and it's like, oh, you're so brilliant. This was like, it seems like they, they've hired a new ad agency and it almost was clever and cool because they had a guy with a mustache at one point doing a backflip. But it just, I was like, that's like a JV version of a Nike ad. So I'm, I, 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 so much, so much. All right, guys, we couldn't even get to do all that we wanted to do because this just was an amazing week, track and field. But we're sure we can, anything we didn't get to, we can talk about on our bonus Friday 15 podcast for supporters, club members. Go to let'srun.com slash subscribe. You guys have anything else you want to say? Yes. Well, we didn't even talk about Michael Norman going to the 100. But I guess we can save that for the Supporters Club podcast. We've got a big meet. Hope this podcast is coming out early on Wednesday in Madrid. And I didn't know this, John. 600 meters of altitude, which could be a problem, is the 1500 meters of the Madrid World Athletics Gold Meet. Yerdegus is in that race. If it wasn't at altitude, and maybe he'll still do it because 2000 feet isn't that high possible world record. I mean, I think when the iron's hot, you strike, but he'll probably just go there, go for the win and they won't get the record. But to be the first guy to go sub three thirty indoors, like I guarantee that's happened by the end of next year. I'll say that much. I think you go for it now, John. I don't think he will though. Yeah. We, what do we say? I think this is becoming one of our phrases. You strike while the iron is hot. You never know when injuries are going to happen. You never know when your form's going to tank. 
I think Gerard Goose has a bright future, but this is his best opportunity, certainly, to get a world record. So I would go for it if he can. Yeah, we'll see if the altitude throws it off. But if I were him, I'm saying I want to be the first man sub-330 indoors. Yeah, I think it's a great opportunity for him. The guy's just, guys, you know, 728, 347. But world record, American distance runner, go for it. But also, well... You know, the Michael Norman, we can put some of these things up. In some ways, I'm saying this is almost sort of like our Friday 15 podcast. We're pushing this out. We didn't do a live show right after World Cross Country. But if you want the extra podcast every week from us, you got to be a Supporters Club member. We broke down World Cross Country live from Australia. Join today, let'srun.com slash subscribe. But there's a lot of other stuff to talk about this week. I'm not sure how much action there is, so we can break down some of this other stuff. Sad news, John. You just woke up, but I assume you've seen this because you, you you scroll Twitter, Greg Foster, the three-time world champion, Olympic silver medalist, 110-meter hurdles, passed away, part of the UCLA greater track family. I think there's no greater track family than UCLA in terms of history. Like his death was sort of presented that way. Otto Bolden put it out there. And then even on the Let's Run thread about him, it seemed, I feel like we have a lot of UCLA people chiming in. So sad news there. Other news, uh, well, I guess we shouldn't say sad because it's uplifting these people come forward, but like the Boston Globe had an amazing story. Well, amazing is a really bad word to use here, but outlining the, and this is related in some ways to World Cross Country, three-time World Cross Country champion, Lynn Jennings from the United States. People don't realize how good she was. Bronze medal at the Olympics in the 10,000. And it came out, her coach, John Babington, like she just details how he sexually abused her when she's starting at the age of 15. He admits to this. Um, and there's other prominent athletes in this story. Uh, Melody Fairchild, the last American, the only American woman to medal in the junior race, essentially says Babington, you know, tried to get her drunk and do something and it didn't happen. And then also, Darlene Beckford Pearson. I mean, this story is kind of weird. She, she was a, like a really good runner, NCAA champion, I think, for Harvard. The crazy thing was the thing this worked. Once Safe Sport, this was reported to Safe Sport, they then call the cops in Massachusetts. The cop taking the call is Darlene Beckford Pearson, who was like, oh my God, I've kept this secret. And she alleges abuse from him as well. I mean, it's... It's crazy, but I think it's 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 the sport needs these people. Like these are three stars, superstars. With what is someone thinking as a superstar coach? And this happened to them, so people just need to be aware. Like this can happen to anyone, you know. Yeah, can we talk about the bravery of Lynn Jennings here? Not only does she come forward about this, she say, she said in the story it was heartbreaking to read. She stayed silent at the time because. She was worried if she spoke out, her running career would be taken away from her. She leaves him for college, then comes back as a pro and is like, look, I, I need a good coach if I want to achieve my goals in running. She goes back to him after he abused her. It was really, really tough to read. But then years later in 2017, she says she wants to talk to, she, she wants to speak out about this. 
and nothing really happens. Her claims are investigated, but they're not they're not corroborated, and so it isn't it doesn't really go any further. She starts calling people up. She starts looking for other people who are abused by him, and the article said she took to it with the tenacity of an Olympian. It's exactly what she did. So, I, I mean, I already was incredibly impressed by Lynn Jennings given her running accomplishments, but what she did to bring this story to light. Oh my God. I, it's, I can't imagine how strong you have to be to do that. I'm so impressed by her. Oh yeah. That's crazy. I mean, I, I didn't realize it wouldn't have come to light unless she did that. I sort of missed that part, but maybe we can try to get Lynn I, I mean, on the podcast, but I, yeah, like, no, she put it all together. She, she researched this, but I, oh man. And then, yeah, just like the fact that through all of this, like, is when she got inducted to USA TF Hall of Fame, I didn't realize how big a star she was. Phil Knight wanted to fly her out on a private jet. And she couldn't tell him why, but she's like, I'm not going because essentially when I get inducted, I'll be expected to praise my coach. So this guy was, I assume, coaching her when she was like the three-time World Cross Country champion. And... Like shame on Wellesley College. This guy was at Wellesley College as a coach for a long time, and like on the record admitted to like trying to booze up an athlete. And you know, I guess they're they're an adult and sexually still take advantage of the coach athlete relationship. He wasn't fired. He was put on like one year leave or something. Come on, he was coaching that back to his apartment. That's you know, instead he was quietly suspended and basically no one else knew about it at Wellesley. That that's shameful. That's really when he should have been brought to justice. And now he's seventy seven. I mean, this man should have been in jail. And he's said, Yes, I did this stuff, I, I regret it, but he can't you can't make up for what he did to these women. So it's just it's it's a sad story all around, but it was some great journalism by the Boston Globe getting it all out there. Yeah, I wonder what percent of oh, oh. it's for a topic for another day, John. Maybe we cut this part. But what percent of crimes are permitted by men with sexual problems? My God, or I guess men in general, John. <laughs> there, there is it, or males. We should use the word man, men, men. The violent crime, rape in the world. It's done by one of the sexes. Generally, not the other. I'll say that much. We didn't have time, time, John, to talk about the Seville Marathon. Eighteen guys went sub two hundred eight oh sixteen. The reason I say two hundred eight sixteen because that was the fastest time by an American last year. I mean, this isn't like the London Marathon, John. It's the Seville Marathon. My God, like it's just we had national records by Israel, Peru, Bolivia, Chile, Uruguay. Now, granted. Bolivia, Chile, and Uruguay were over 208.16, but we're just not seeing it by American men. It's crazy. Like our half marathon records and our marathon records are from prior to what, 2010. It's crazy. Yeah, well, Seville, Seville, was, Seville was very deep a couple of years ago as well, one of the deepest marathons in history. But when you put it in perspective that way, yeah, it does make you think like, wow, Americans should be running 206 and 207, the very best ones at least. Anyway, all right. I think we got to go here well, well in this podcast. I mean, this was a jam-packed week, as we said. And the Michael Norman, I want to talk about that, so let's 
push our thoughts to that on the, till the Friday 15. But I think from now I have one day left in Sydney. I've got a bunch of exploring to do. I have a, I'm going to the Royal Botanical Gardens in about 10 minutes. So I don't want to miss that. Thanks, you guys. Thanks to the Supporters Club members. Your subscriptions help pay for boots-on-the-ground coverage here. Very few outlets. I'm, there were a few Kenyans, maybe Ugandans, but very few athletes sent someone. Sorry, very few outlets sent someone to cover World Cross. So I appreciate that, Robert Weldon, we're, you're able to send me, and I appreciate our Supporters Club members for helping defray the cost there. So thank you, everyone. Wait, John, were you the only American media there? Oh, yeah. I mean, maybe as in the mix zone, there were no – I didn't see any other Americans. Wow. Crazy. I mean, we've been to Uganda. We've been to Kenya. There's lot, There was lots of Americans at those. And nothing, though, will top, John, the gorilla trekking in Uganda. If you've, if you've ever thought of doing something cool in your life, you need to do this. I don't know how this is more popular. Like, we're, like, essentially, like, crawling around in a jungle. Like, no joke. What, 15, 20 feet from a gorilla? 20 yards? 10 yards? I don't know how close we were. I mean, oh, you're yeah, just... probably 10 yards. And our guide was hacking our path through the jungle with a machete. Yeah. And like... we had... We had guards at the back with <laughs> rifles to shoot the gorillas if they ended up charging us. One of them bluff charged us. It was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. Yeah, if you, I highly recommend anyone if they're considering it to do it. It was awesome. I mean, you got to go to Uganda for it. It's a long way from the airport. It was a rough, you know, I think seven hours in the car or something, but it was amazing. Yeah, and this is the, den- the densest jungle I've ever seen. Like. People think they've seen a forest here or a jungle. No, you've never seen something like this. But, John, I, I know where you got to go. I think the pub crawl starts in about 10 minutes. Wait, it's kind of early there. So maybe I'm thrown off. Maybe the walking tour is first. But I know you got something in 10 minutes. Have fun. It's supporters. John, wear the Let's Run shirt. So if any supporters club members are like there, though, free drinks from John. Free drinks from John. Be careful, though. We will have Robert tell on the supporters club contest podcast, actually. And think about this. The time the Australian women came to the United States and said, hey, let's go get some drinks. That story will be told on the Supporters Club podcast. Drink responsibly, everybody. Thanks for listening. Remember, people, bibboards.com. Safety pins at races are over. They have the only snap and lock technology. It's starting a revolution. It's environmentally friendly, the cleanest and greenest way to the finish line. Use code Let's Run to save 20%. Check it out. Link in the show notes, bibboards.com.